Hello and welcome to the PBPA podcast. I'm Sarisha Gunta. Thanks for joining us today as we talk about your back to work questions and specifically focusing on safety considerations as Georgia has started to reopen. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to tell you a bit about the Pro Bono Partnership of Atlanta. PBPA strengthens our community by engaging volunteer attorneys to provide nonprofits with free business legal services. For more information on who is eligible to be a client or to apply for consideration, visit our website. Our website also has resources like articles and webcasts specific to Georgia nonprofits and their business legal concerns. Check it out at pbpatl.org. This podcast is general information. It is not specific legal counsel. Contact your attorney for guidance on your organization's specific questions. And now I'd like to introduce our guest for today, Micah Dickey, who is an associate at Fisher Phillips. Thank you, Micah, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So today, Micah's going to be answering some questions about um, their back-to-work considerations as Georgia starts to reopen. And to start off with, Micah, let me ask you, is, is there a standard to know when is an okay time to return to work? Thank you. Yes, there, there are several standards, actually, uh, that employers and workplaces should be aware of in Georgia. The, the main overall uh, guidance comes from the White House. The president announced the Opening Up America Again plan on April 16th, and as many of you may know, there are three phases to that. Now, those phases really aren't used that often by the governor's office to guide employers. The governor has promulgated guidance and uh, recommendations and, some, in some cases, requirements for employers that don't strictly track the three phases, where, say, other states like Pennsylvania will have a yellow, red, green phase, and it's kind of easy to track how employers should or should not uh, decide to open. So the White House guidance, you know, there's a lot of it in the news, and you'll see some of the reference to those uh, phases in the governor's releases. And But no matter what phase we're in, employers should focus on three main things, developing and implementing appropriate workplace safety policies for social distancing, screening workers and employees to make sure that they don't have COVID-19 symptoms, um, sanitization, testing, uh, policies on business travel. And we'll get into that a little bit later as we get into the, the details. The second thing is to continue to monitor the workforce. Communication is key here. You want to keep your employees and workers, whether they're volunteers, you know, I'm using that interchangeably, whether it's volunteers or employees, communication is key. Whatever efforts you're using to decide when to reopen and then what safeguards you're using in the workplace, you have to communicate that to your employees so that they know you're doing everything that the CDC is recommending. The third and final thing is that you want to implement policies and procedures for contract contact tracing whenever you have a positive case of COVID-19. And hopefully, that'll become less and less important as we go along, but at the moment, those three main things. But getting into more specific guidance, whether it's OSHA or whether it's the White House, pretty much everyone's following the CDC guidance. 
and the governor's office is following the CDC guidance pretty closely, and so we want to go into that. And actually, last week, the CDC issued guidance for workplaces, and basically, they did a flowchart, so it's pretty handy. Okay. So um, this CDC flowchart, is that that's available on the CDC's website, is that correct? Okay, that's great. correct, it is. And are there Georgia-specific guidelines or requirements for returning to work? Yes, there are. And those are really the ones that you want to follow because the CDC has made clear that you need to follow your local authority because the CDC doesn't tell the country as a whole, hey, we're in this phase or that phase, so it's up to each locality. And in this case, in Georgia, the governor has taken the lead and supersedes all local orders. So at this point, there are requirements for different categories of business. As I said before, warehouses and shelters might fall under critical infrastructure, and I'll, I'll go into that a little bit more. But the main classification of business in Georgia that has requirements that nonprofits need to be aware of are the all of the catch-all, all other businesses category. In the latest Georgia executive order, there's a long list of requirements that businesses have to uh, adhere to. And I'll go through them quickly. The businesses are required to screen and evaluate workers for COVID-19 symptoms. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to take temperatures, but you do if you're not going to take temperatures. You need to ask the employee, have you had a fever today? Have you, and go down the list of the COVID-19 symptoms. They're listed in the order. They're also on the CDC's website. Those symptoms may change. so. Nonprofits will want to show, frequently check the CDC's website here. You want to make sure that's also done in a private manner, consistent with privacy laws and the ADA. Um, people have images of people come through the front door and they're going to be asked this long list of questions in the presence of their coworkers. It doesn't need to be like that private thing. Some uh, businesses even have apps. Technology companies are making their own apps, plus there are third parties that can do a self-screening. Self-screening is okay in Georgia. Some states actually require the employer to actually take the temperature and or screen the employees, so those apps might not comply. But in Georgia, that's okay. Next, signage needs to be posted at the facility that anyone displaying COVID-19 symptoms should not be allowed on the property. Um, and I won't read all of these. There's a list of 22. The main ones are encouraging workers to wear face uh, coverings. Notably, only restaurants and summer camps are re actually required to make their employees and volunteers wear face masks. There's a similar requirement for barbershops, hairdressers, um, that says use appropriate PPE. It's not exactly clear what that means and it's as practicable. So really, the hard and fast rule are face coverings outside of the food industry are not exactly required, even though you'll see a lot of barbershops and salons having them. It's, it's arguable whether that would be and for most nonprofits in an office setting, they don't have to make their employees wear face coverings, but it's definitely encouraged. You want to provide additional sanitizer. You want to encourage teleworking. And that, that is consistent with the guidance of when at all possible, let people stay home and work. Much better um, to telework than to have to implement these other procedures. Social distancing is important. And we'll go into that a little bit later about what different settings can do to enforce social distancing. The other thing would be if you're if you're uh, exposed to the public, those employees need to have something like a plexiglass barrier, let's say. And you may have seen those at your local grocery store, a barrier between employees and the public. It's basically just, in effect, a sneeze. Just wanting to make sure that there are less droplets being exposed. That's really what the six is. 
So that's really the main thing in Georgia is that there are requirements, but they're very much open to interpretation. And it's really going to be about, did you make the appropriate effort? And we'll get into that later with liability. Um, let's see. There is one more rule that I want to mention. No matter, you know, you can, in a way, think of all these requirements and try to meet them, but there is still a 10-person rule in place in Georgia, at least until June 12th. You can't have more than 10 people in your business or in your location if they have if those persons have to be within six feet of each other for more than transitory or incidental periods. So in other words, I mean, if you if, you, if people can't space out, you really shouldn't have those people in that space. And so whatever you do, that principle should guide the employer. Okay. And you mentioned PPE earlier. Can employers require that their employees wear PPE, such as masks or gloves? They can, yes. Um, in fact, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration enforces PPE standards. And so if the employer requires this personal protective equipment, they have to do certain things. They have to develop policies and basically um, write down, if you will, I mean, they have to document this is the hazard in the workplace, Here's the PPE we think that will mitigate that hazard, and we considered other possible PPE. So in this case, it's pretty simple. It's if you're in an office setting, let's say, the hazard, exposure to COVID-19 from coworkers or any member of the public, the PPE, cloth face coverings, because that's the main PPE that the CDC is advising for at least low-risk workplaces. If you were a healthcare provider, or where there were heavy uh, exposure to the public, that we might have a different conversation about more PPE. And then finally, just someone signing and dating and saying, hey, I, as the employer, made this decision on how to keep my employees safe. Um, also, these need to be face cloth, cloth face coverings. Do not allow employees or volunteers to wear the N95 mask, because that will be considered a respirator, and that will just It'll just make you have to comply with many of the things under the OSH Act, and you just don't want to have to deal with that. And the CDC is not requiring that. Those need to be saved for other workplaces that need them for other occupational hazards. Um, also, if you're requiring PPE, and again, you can, you want to make sure to just train employees. It's just simple how to put this PPE on, how to take it off, how to use it, how to care for it. So if it were a cloth, cloth face covering, you would say, hey, if you're sick, you need to change it out. You need to have multiple multiple um, pairs, actually know the, the word there, multiple masks. Um, also, if you require it, you do need to pay for it. And so that's something that needs to be thought of. And again, you don't have to require face coverings in Georgia or per the CDC or per OSHA. So it's a kind of an individual decision in each nonprofit whether they should make their, their workers use the masks. Because again, it's a PR decision. It depends. You know, your, you know the people that are coming into your facility better than anyone else. How will they feel if the volunteers or employees are, are or are not wearing masks? Okay, so what if you have an employee who refuses to wear a mask or gloves? Well, it's it, you should first take a collaborative approach. Highlight all the things that the CDC is recommending. Highlight that it's a very low risk because in Georgia, uh, all the nonprofits we're discussing, it's a low risk of exposure to COVID-19. So highlight what you're doing and then say, this is what we're requiring for the safety of your volunteers or employees and the public. The, at the end of the day, unless they have requested an accommodation for, say, a health condition or disability or, or, or religious accommodation, 
you can require them to wear it or you know, basically, hey, you can't, you can't volunteer with us today if you're not going to wear the mask because this is our policy. But again, any communication needs to be viewed in the light of this could be a request for an accommodation under the ADA or for a religious accommodation. And in, in those cases, you have to have a conversation and do the normal procedure that you do for any other request for an accommodation. And in those situations, those might be a good time to also follow up with your attorney for further guidance and how to address it. Um, Absolutely. And I guess another question similar is what if they have a health or disability that precludes them from wearing PPE? Again, that's going to be a conversation. Once they've indicated, hey, I can't wear this cloth face covering because I have difficulty breathing, they may or may not give you enough detail to make a quick decision. Um, right now, the advice that we are giving is that you can't require a doctor's note because medical practitioners are just overwhelmed at this point. They may not have time to issue doctor's notes to everyone who may want a, a accommodation based on a disability or medical condition. So err on the side of caution, err on the side of granting an accommodation. It may be, let's say it's an employee, can you allow them to telework? Can you make them uh, use a workspace that maybe is away from the public and away from other volunteers so they don't need that PPE, let's say. If it's for a member of the public, you again want to be sensitive. There are some uh, members of the public, because again, the CDC isn't requiring PPE. Maybe allowing them to uh, utilize your services at a different time or in a different method so that the exposure is less. You want to try to work with people because again, you know, legal legal liability is one thing, but there's just a, you know, PR concerns are also primary, especially for the nonprofits that want to serve the public, just need to do so in a conscientious manner. And what about COVID-19 or antibody testing? Can that be a requirement for returning employees? For COVID-19 testing, yes. The EEOC has made it very clear that at this moment during the pandemic, the uh, nonprofits and employers can test um, their workers for COVID-19. That could change. It's a, it's a highly fluid situation. Two months from now, the guidance may come out and say, you know, at this point, it's not reasonable. Because remember, the standard is, is this a business necessity? Does your business have to do this medical exam? Because that's what it is in order to have people working at your workplace. Um, the antibody test is a little different. It's not clear whether the antibody tests that are out there are actually reliable, and that's one of the criteria you have to use. You can't just weird junk science, right? I mean, uh, an employer has to be conscious about the medical exams that it's making its employees undergo. And so we're advising people at the moment, until the FDA makes it crystal clear that these antibody tests are reliable, to not require them. I know that uh, Piedmont Healthcare and other hospitals have sent around communications offering antibody testing. It's not clear what that actually signifies. All it means is that at some point in the past, you have been exposed to COVID-19, but it doesn't necessarily signal immunity. So the utility of actually requiring an antibody test is probably pretty minimal. So if an employer um, requires a COVID-19 test um, and the employee takes time to go get that testing done, how should employees be compensated for that time? They should be compensated at their regular rate, whatever the normal uh, pay scheme is under the FLSA. You have to compensate for that time. There's there's no rule issued from the Department of Labor at this point, but we're advising clients treat it as kind of time that you should pay the employee. Okay. And um, what if you require the COVID nineteen testing and an employee refuses to be tested? As with the PPE. 
try to have a conversation, collaborate, try to show them why you think it's necessary, that it's allowed per the EEOC. Um, be on the lookout for a request for accommodation under the ADA or for a religious exemption. If it's not a request for accommodation, it's not something under the ADA and, and it's something that you feel strongly about, you can refuse entry to that employee. You don't have to let them back to the work site because again, right now, the key is stopping the pandemic. And so you wanna take all reasonable measures. Okay, and um, what if employees are unable or refuse to return to work, um, whether for general COVID-19 concerns or if they are high risk employees or have childcare issues? This is where the phases come in a little bit. Um, and George's executive order talks about the shelter in place for the medically fragile for high risk individuals. So at the moment, it's conceivable that a, high, a person with um, you know, that's medically fragile could actually refuse to come to work. You want to treat those employees that refusal as a request for accommodation and have a conversation. Definitely under phase one and two of the White House's plan, the medically fragile need to stay at home. For non-high risk employees, uh, we're taking the stance that again, unless it's a request for an accommodation or a religious accommodation, or unless it's one of the qualifying reasons under the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, you know, if they're having child care issues or they themselves have been diagnosed with COVID-19 or having to deal with that, they're really out of luck. I mean, it, it would be a, a decision at that point of the business, you know, can you let this employee telework um, or whether you can do it without that employee. Okay. And how can different workspaces be set up to provide social distancing? There are a myriad of ways, whether it's an office space, a warehouse, retail, or a shelter. So it really depends. Just think, how can I keep people apart? Whether it's a plexiglass barrier. I've seen round uh, break rooms in a lunchroom that literally has uh, sheets of plexiglass between it, cutting it into like a four-piece pie. Um, I've seen just taped spots, kind of every other seat at a long lunch table. If it's a, uh, a warehouse and you've got stations where people are, say, filling boxes, it's measuring out that six foot and a six foot radius that no one is around them. So, I mean, it'll obviously reduce capacity in a warehouse setting or in an office space, but that's what needs to be done to comply with those requirements. Uh, for a shelter, again, if there are beds or places where there are medical checkups happening, again, think about partitioning. Uh, you can think about curtains. I've seen um, like heavier duty and not, not a shower curtain, but like a plexiglass or vinyl curtain that can be put up just because you want to think about any way that you can have barriers. Um, One-way pathways is possible or is possible in some offices. I've seen, uh, I think, Fisher Phillips, when we reopen, we may do some kind of one-way. Our office is kind of like a big circle. So if you go down a hallway, well, you got to keep going and then go around. I think that's kind of, that's going to be the plan. And um, finally, do you have any suggestions to limit liability when a nonprofit does decide to reopen? Workers' compensation will be a big area, and most of those clients, we don't know yet how the workers' comp system will handle all these COVID-19 cases, whether or not they'll deem employee uh, that says they were exposed to COVID-19 at work, or they'll actually deem it work-related. That remains to be seen. The main uh, things that you can do are the things we already talked about. That will shield you from some liability from OSHA and also from general tort premises liability. It's going to come down to... Did you do what the CDC recommended? There's a long list, so how, how many things did you do? And it's just gonna be very fact intensive. 
you just have to be reasonable, try to make your best efforts, and from OSHA's perspective, from the workplace safety perspective, you just don't want an employee calling and saying, hey, we're all packed in this one room, no one's wearing face masks, I haven't seen a bottle of sanitizer in weeks, no one's washing their hands. You just want to make sure, think of all the things that the CDC requires and think, how can I easily and most cost-effectively make this happen? And again, for premises liability, it's going to be a similar thing. The standard of care is going to be what's reasonable. You don't want to go above and beyond what the CDC and OSHA is requiring because then you might hold yourself to a higher standard of care, which might incur liability. And um, what are your thoughts on employers signing waivers as they come back to work? That's a hotly debated topic um, in many firms and in the news. We are currently advising employers and work, workplaces not to have their employees sign waivers because really it's a PR nightmare. Um, we're in a national pandemic. It's probably just not a good idea. Plus, those waivers really, are, you know, from a workers' comp perspective, won't be enforceable. Even from a tort perspective, um, they can't protect you from gross negligence like any other waiver. And OSHA really doesn't care about what waivers are uh, signed. If you're not following the OSHA Act and CDC guidance, um, you're going to incur some amount of liability. So we advise people not to not to make assignments. Okay. Well. Micah, that was the last of my questions. This information has been so helpful. On um, behalf of myself, PBPA, and our nonprofit clients who are working so hard to continue to serve their clients in this time of need, we truly appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. And to our listeners, we hope you found this information to be helpful. As always, please reach out to your attorney for specific answers to your nonprofit's questions. Thank you for joining us.